All right. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Come on, you look good this morning on this Memorial Day weekend. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just turn to your neighbor, just give them a compliment this morning. Just tell them you look good this morning. Just tell them. Now turn to your second choice, the other person you just ignored for whatever reason, and tell them you don't look half bad yourself. And uh, man, what a, what a joy to be in Louisville, Kentucky, everybody. You know, I was born in Lexington, Kentucky, so I don't know how the relationship of Lexington and Louisville is, if that's like a rival or not, but, um, but I am from Kentucky, so call me relative, everybody. Call me somewhat relative, um, but I bring you love from Raleigh, North Carolina, where I do pastor along with an incredible community, and um, it's so cool to get to be here and to see all that I've heard about you from afar from Pastor Jason, um, and speaking of Jason, I love your pastors. Pastor Jason and Andrea, and I just got to meet Andrea for my first time, but I have, Jason's known me my whole life, literally, and uh, there was a season of our life where things kind of, um, I guess we didn't, we lost touch, and then I had a book end up on my desk one day called Deep Change, and I was thought, you know what, this is a cool book cover, I'll read it, and as I started to read it, uh, I felt so connected in kindred spirit to the guy who wrote it. And I uh, was like, man, who wrote this book? And I'm like, I think I know this guy. And so uh, I reached out to him. We, I personally took a group of guys in my church through Deep Change as a small group, guys that have just given their life to Jesus, been in church forever, and God began to do something in our church. So we did a Deep, a deep Change series, and who better than to have your very own pastor come out and kick it off. And it's one of our most popular series as a church. And so I just want to say thank you, Hope City, um, for being a part of helping to take the message of deep change in the churches all over the southeast and I hope you feel encouraged by what God's doing in other churches because of your generosity because of the gift that's in your pastors um, but I absolutely love Jason I love getting to meet Andrea today and I've heard so many good things about your church and so it's cool to be here in person and uh, always an honor to bring God's word to you uh, and to be able to just preach and so um you know, I, I got to listen to the message from this past Sunday. Anybody here last week uh, on the prodigal? What a great message, man. And then I got to even listen to Pastor Andrea's message for Mother's Day. Come on. Where's all the mothers in the house, man? She crushed it. I told her, I said, there she is. I said, she's got a gift. And so I kind of got to catch up on a little bit of the heart of Pastor Jason of what he shared last week. And I love the wall outside. And Anybody in the, in the room believing for sons and daughters, man, in the next season to come home? And I heard about the salvations, what, 12 salvations last week? Come on, church. We ought to clap our hands and celebrate that. That's amazing, man. And if it's okay, I might grab a water at some point if that's okay. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And I had kind of prayed about what the Holy Spirit wanted to speak into this community this morning. And little did I know what Pastor Jason had shared. I listened to his message on the plane. And it's amazing how the Holy Spirit kind of coincides and blends a message together. And a lot of what I'm going to speak to you today, I think, is going to be right in alignment with the message and the burden that's on your pastor's heart, as well as this community. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2 and Right off the bat, I know some of you are thinking, oh no, he just said the book of Revelations. This is not an end times message, everyone. So there is no um, eschatology going on here today. Uh, growing up as a fellow church kid, I've been traumatized enough by Left Behind series to do that to you. Um, but Revelation chapter 2, give a little context for those of you who are somewhat new to church. And, uh, and are, thank you so much. You're awesome. Give it up for Pastor Andrea, everybody. Um, 
To give a little context, though, if maybe some of you are unfamiliar, the Apostle John, same John, who was a disciple of Jesus, has been um, pretty much exiled to an island called Patmos, and in captivity under Rome, he's on this island. Uh, This is years, years following the resurrection and death of Jesus, and John, the Apostle John, has a vision of Jesus, and Jesus in this vision gives him a message to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and again, you got to remember, John, the Apostle John, is a pastor at heart, and he's got a burden for these churches, and Jesus relays a message to the seven churches, and out of these seven churches, one being the most influential, which is the church of Ephesus. If you know the book of Ephesians, this is the the church of Ephesus, the letter that was written uh, by Paul to the Ephesians. So the Apostle John receives a message pertaining the church of Ephesus from Jesus to the church. This would be like Jesus visiting Logan Claypool this morning in the hotel room and giving me a a message to give Pastor Jason and Hope City Church. So that's what's kind of going on um, in this moment with Revelation chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If not, you can follow along with me on your phone or, or just listening. Uh, but this is kind of what I believe the Word of the Lord has for us today, and then we'll pray, and we'll get going, and we'll get you out of here in time for some uh, lunch, brunch. I don't know what you guys do around here. Memorial Day plans, anybody? Okay, all right, let's do this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, Jesus says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet Jesus says, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear in what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. For the next few moments, I want to speak to you on the idea of returning the friendship. Returning to friendship. And before I get going, it says I got 20 minutes. I just want to make sure. Am I good on that? No. Okay. What time do I need to be done? Ideally, 1045? 11? Listen, I'm not going to be long-winded today and make the 11 o'clock mad uh, or 1130 people mad, so I'm going to be good. Would you pray with me one more time all over the room as we just prepare our hearts? Spirit of Jesus, we say come. You're welcome here. And I just ask that you would give me a grace today and an anointing to be able to speak into the hearts of people, um, to encourage this community, this amazing community of believers in Louisville. And I just pray today that, Spirit of God, you'd meet with us. And my prayer is we not leave the same we came, but we leave changed by the Spirit of Jesus, more in love with you. Come on, as a faithful church says, amen and amen. Imagine with me, church, for a moment that Jesus decides to attend Hope City one Sunday morning. Imagine with me, uh, he decides one Sunday morning like you to just get in his car and come to church. But the only catch is that no one will know it's him. He's arriving as a normal, average guest just like you and me. He pulls into the parking lot, greeted by someone in the parking lot. Jesus is escorted to the front doors, greeted by the greeters, uh, gets to know some people in the lobby, small talk, says hello, grabs a cup of coffee, and then makes his way into a gathering just like this to find a seat, just like you. 
and throughout the worship and the songs, which, by the way, earlier, my man, is it Keegan? Keegan crushed that song today, everybody. Where's Keegan at? Well done, man. You did great. I love that. How old are you? 15? That's amazing, man. Come on. That's incredible. You did great. Keegan's leading worship with Jesus out in the auditorium, and Jesus comes on that Sunday morning, and he's throughout the worship and the teaching, and, uh, and then at the end of service, he comes forward to receive prayer and hears some of your stories and gets to talk to you, and then at the end of the service, he, he heads on. Now, clearly, I tell you this hypothetical, amusing scenario for one reason, and it's simply to ask you this, what would Jesus say about Hope City? What would Jesus say about this community of believers? What would Jesus report? It's not far from what took place in Ephesus. You see, to give a little context, Ephesus was a major financial center for Asia Minor, not only for Asia Minor, but for the world at large. It's the home of the Greek uh, worship of the Greek goddess Diana. And Paul comes in and converts some young believers in Ephesus, and revival breaks loose in Ephesus. And so many people start coming to Jesus, they stop buying statues of the Greek god Diana, which was a huge source of income for Ephesus, and starts tanking the economy because of the revival that takes place. And so they have to, you know, Paul's now fearful for his life, has to leave. Priscilla and Aquila, they, you know, they're, 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 uh, they empower Timothy. Timothy is one of the megachurch pastors of the other church, large church in Ephesus. And then Timothy's persecuted and is handed over to the apostle John, the same John that was the one whom Jesus loved, who writes about himself in the book of John and the Gospels. And is the same John who would take care of the mother of Jesus, Mary, who, get this, Jesus' own mother Mary attended the church of Ephesus. Talk about a Christmas production, everybody. Mary was in Ephesus, an amazing church. But Jesus relays a, a message to John on the condition of this successful, influential, productive congregation. And Jesus begins this message to the church by praising them. He says, I know your deeds. Come on, this church was, they had served teams all over the place. People were involved, active in the community. He said, I know your hard work, you're strategic, you're excellent in all you're doing. They had great leaders in the church. I know your perseverance. Jesus says, you've not grown weary. The church at this time was under extreme persecution, and they had not compromised, and they had been faithful. He said, I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. You stood up against corrupt teaching and false teachers while guarding what is true, refusing to compromise scripture. And I know what you're thinking, Logan, you're thinking probably what I'm thinking. What could possibly be wrong with Ephesus? Because a report like this, any Western American church pastor, they're thinking they're crushing it. I mean, you got Jesus talking about how faithful you are and you're excellent and you got people involved. I mean, this, this for sure is making it to your church's annual report at the end of the year, you know, anybody. This is on church social media, Jesus himself, leaving a Google review of your church. I mean, this is as good as it gets. But Jesus looks beyond the outside condition and he looks well at the heart. We serve a God that doesn't look on the outside, he looks on the inside. And Jesus says, but I have one thing against you. I've just got one issue. And he says, you've left your first love. Now, as he walks through the church, knowing the real condition of our souls, he sees through all the activity, all the patience, all the orthodoxy, standing true to God's word. And he tells the church, you're just flawed at the center. 
Now, what does Jesus mean by first love? Well, he means the love you had at first. Daryl Johnson summarizes it best stating, Jesus says that for all of their hard work, patient endurance, orthodoxy, the Ephesians were simply no longer in love with them. They'd fallen out of love with Jesus. Affection and intimacy were gone. Can I ask you, have you ever felt an ache? An ache deep in your soul? For those who have years behind them of following Jesus, attending church, potentially decades of reading your Bible and prayer meetings and giving and generosity, there just comes a point on your journey of life where you feel something's missing. You feel like maybe there's something more. Could it be perhaps a loss of intimacy? A loss of love for the person of Jesus? Now, how does this happen? Well, Earl Palmer profoundly diagnoses this as the Ephesus problem. He writes, it happens quietly and by gradual, imperceptible shifts of focus over time. You know, life has a way of happening to us, does it not? And as time passes, it's easy to find ourselves just what? Going through the motions. No one ever wakes up one day and says, today's the day I'm going to fall out of love. It happens over time. And if not careful, as the years go by, we find ourselves in a place similar to Strawn Coleman, an author and spiritual director who writes in his book, Beholding, I cannot recommend it uh, highly enough. He writes, how do we commune with God without agenda or necessity? He says, I wonder if the answer is partly why so many of us pray like crazy and suffering, but then forget God and healing. Because we don't know what to do when the basis of our relationship with God is no longer desperate acceptance, healing, longing, or need. Going on the right that I realized I'd been praying in reverse my whole life, looking for a working relationship with God when God longed for a friend. You ever found yourself in a working relationship with God? If there's one thing, if you're taking notes or writing anything down or Quite frankly, if you just hear anything today, this is what I want you to walk away with, church. It's this. God desires friendship with you. You. Not just your neighbor. Not just Pastor Jason. You. It's one thing for us to ask, how does this happen? It's completely another thing to ask, how do we get it back? How do we return to first love? And I've got three simple observations for you this morning from the words of Jesus himself that I believe can help guide us through asking this question. And my first is, is simply this. Jesus instructs the church of Ephesus to remember. He says, remember the heights from which you have fallen. Remember what, Logan? Remember what we've lost. Remember what this was all about in the first place. Maybe you're new to church today, or maybe you're newer to faith and you're on a journey of faith. Maybe you're here today and you've been in church a long time. It can be easy to forget what all of this is about in the first place. I think over the past century, um, the Western church has done an outstanding job, tremendous job of preaching the message of the gospel of repentance, of, of, of both the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and um, we've seen so many people come to know Jesus. We've seen such incredible decades of revivals and ministries and crusades. 
But in all of that, I'm afraid at times we've stopped only there. And what I would like to just propose today is simply this, that forgiveness wasn't Christ's ultimate goal on the cross. Reconciliation was. Now, don't get too weirded out on me yet and start writing an email to Pastor Jason in the middle of this sermon um, because in no way am I diminishing the cross. Thank God for the cross. Where would we be without the cross? Without the resurrection, what hope would we have to gather? But friends, there's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation literally means the restoration of friendship. You know, I can forgive you, but not like you. <laughs> I can forgive you and not want anything to do with you. But according to 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all of this is from God who reconciled us, restored us to friendship to himself through Jesus, gave us the what? Ministry of restoring friendship. Now, if God's ultimate goal was that he could make himself radically available to friendship with us once again, could it be true today that there are people in this room who believe while God has forgiven you, he doesn't like you? That while God has forgiven you and you're on your way to heaven, God has no interest in enjoying friendship with you. Forgiveness takes us back to the fall while reconciliation takes us further back to creation. Genesis 3.8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of God, the Lord God, as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Thank God for the cross. But friends, God hasn't just forgiven you. He's fully restored your seat at the table of friendship with him for eternity. In other words, God has fully restored your ability to sit down at the table with him and get to know what he's like. Get to know his voice. Get to know his heart. For you. John 15, 15, probably one of the most profound, profound verses in all of Scripture. Jesus says, I no longer call you friends because a servant does not know his master's business. Jesus says, instead, I have called you friends. Since the beginning of creation, God's intentions and desire have been friendship with his creation. And as the question then becomes, how does this really transform our relationship in relating to God? That the next time you come before God after this service today, you were to come to him friend to a friend. How does this change the way you pray? How does this change the way you come to church? How does this change the way that you live? But secondly, Jesus says repent. Now one definition I found that I love for repentance. A lot of times you hear repentance and you think change the way you think, which you know, is, is an accurate definition, but I loved what I read. It said, repentance is a change of heart. And you might be asking, repent of what, Logan? Well, to repent of believing a lie. And the lie is the same lie, the ancient lie of the serpent in the garden, which is, if you do this or can have this outside of God, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. 
If you're anything like me, you find yourself living in the tension of living in this world while not being formed by the things of this world. And the psychiatrist David Benner quotes St. Ignatius of Loyola's definition of sin as the unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Going on to say that until I am absolutely convinced of this, I will do everything I can to keep my hands on the controls of my life because I think I know better than God of what I need for fulfillment. Is that not true or what? How many times in my life have I believed the lie of the ancient serpent in the garden? That the true satisfaction, love, and joy that I so desire must be found outside of God's best for my life. May I ask you today, church, who or what might you just be placing your trust in today? To whom or what might have your heart more than Jesus? The great reformer Martin Luther once said that whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. I can recall a time recently in my life where I was talking to God about how much I love Abby and how much I love my family and how much I love our church and what God's doing. And it's just like so gently, God responded to me and he said, but Logan, do you still love me? You still love me. What narratives, empty promises have you believed, church, that have left you disappointed today, tired, even religion? Well, there's people here today, you don't need me to tell you. You already know. Once again, left with an emptiness and a void inside of looking for something that will truly satisfy and fulfill that even sometimes just attending and serving and striving and building can't do. That if I only had that or then or arrived at that place in life, then I'd be happy. If only I had that raise or that job or that income or that home or got to this place, I'll pick on my own kind for a minute. If we could just get that building, come on. Just start running that amount of people. Get the three services. Well, guess what happens when you get the three services? You want to go to four. And when you get that building, you want another building. But, you know, condemnation says there's something wrong with you. But conviction says there's a better way. And there's people here that might feel shame in this moment, but shame has no place in this atmosphere of faith. Where today God's not trying to put shame on anybody or condemn anybody. I believe God's coming alongside the arms of men and women in this place today, boys and girls, and he's saying, hey, there's a better way. I know you're tired. I know you're disappointed. I know you're weary. There's a better way. Your pastor and I have a, Deep love and respect for a man named Eugene Peterson. And in his novel, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he probably, um, this little paragraph, I, I could have read this today and we could have prayed and said amen. And we probably all would have given our lives back to Jesus. So I'll just read this and maybe that's what I should have done at the beginning. But repentance is not an emotion, Peterson says. 
It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It's a decision. It is deciding that you've been wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. It is deciding that you were wrong in thinking that you ha- what you had or could get, the strength, the education, the training to make it on your own. It is deciding that you have been told a pack of lies about yourself and your neighbors and your world. And it is deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth, that repentance is a realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus and become his pilgrim in the path of peace. Or as we would say back home, following in the way of Jesus. But lastly, Jesus invites the church to not only remember and to repent, but to return. Or to redo, maybe in some of your Bibles, the things you did at first. And as somebody comes to the keys, that would be awesome to help me sound a little bit more spiritual as we close. There is no formula to relationship. And for those that have been in deep relationships over any period of time, you know that you can't manufacture relationships. And I know the question, though, while I say that for many in this room is, Logan, this has been great and a lot of great quotes and very provoking thoughts, but practically, how do I live this out this week? That if maybe I in any way sense that I am, I don't know, falling out of love with Jesus or falling in, th- in love with other things more than him, what do I do? And John, uh, I want to give three practical steps today for you to consider taking that is less, I want you to see it less as a formula of something you have to do. Because how many any church kids in the room or anyone grow up in church, you're expecting me to say right now, read your Bible, pray. We're, co- we're prayer meeting tonight, all night long, you know. We're going to be more in love with Jesus. You're thinking intensity, Right? but I think it's just the opposite. And I'm gonna give you three things from my own life that I'm doing right now that I hope benefits you, and if anything, you just consider and pray whether this could be uh, something you apply. But the first is found in John chapter six, and this is what I would tell you to do. John chapter six, verse 28 through 29. Then the people asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Now, what the crowd's really doing is they're just saying, Jesus, what do we need to do to receive the kind of life you promised? And there's people here today, you're like, Jesus, you're the kind of person that's like, Jesus, just tell me what I need to do. Give me the book, I'll read it. Give me the formula, give me the equation. Checked it off, I'm done, I'm good. I'm transformed, sanctified, delivered, ready to go to heaven, right? But I love Frederick Dale Bruner's definition in his commentary of the best modern translation he found for Jesus' response being believed is a word we all know called relax. What do you want us to do, Jesus? Relax. Relax. Now, I don't know about you, But is that what comes to mind when you think about what God most requires of you? Relax. Jesus was looking around the room today at people and he's saying, hey, relax. Relax in what? Relax in my love for you, my promises for you, 
my commitment to you? And a great question to ask, well, how do I know if I'm relaxing or not, Logan? Are you living for or from God's love? Are you living from God's love? Because when you're living for God's love, you're anxious, irritable, judgmental, critical, exhausted. But some of the people that I've met that live from God's love are some of the most relaxed. And you know, a lot of times they're in their 80s. I got a couple named Pat and Gail Patterson out in Dallas, Texas. They're my adopted spiritual grandparents. And they're some of the most relaxed people in the world. But he's got cancer. And they've been through hell and back recently. But it was her birthday on Friday and I got a caller today. I forgot the caller. She's going to kill me. Um, and I just remembered that. But late 80s, some of the most relaxed people you've ever met. Because they just realized to live from his love. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus said, so have I loved you. Now, this becomes a challenge for many of us, if you're anything like me, because learning how to, re to receive and accept unconditional love without anything required of you sounds a little too good to be true. But God's love is not something to be achieved, only received. And I want to say something today that might shock you all over the room, and it's this. You never lost his love for you. Because there was nothing you did in the first place to get it. I sense in my spirit today there's someone in this room who believes God loves you less today than he did in a different era and season of your life. And God sent me here today to tell you it's never changed. And today, the Spirit of Jesus is wanting to teach men and women in this room in a greater depth and level how to receive His love. I won't prove it to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God clearly shows and proves His love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. I want you to go back to one of your worst moments in life. I don't know what some of you are thinking. Logan, it's too early for this nonsense. Glad I came to the 10 a.m., you know. I want you to go back to the worst moment of your life where maybe you made a really terrible decision or something really terrible was done to you. It's okay. Go there. I want you to think about the shame, guilt, fear, how dirty you felt, broken you felt, now, if you can imagine yourself there in that place, okay? Helpless, broken, with seemingly nothing but little to offer God. There he chose you. 
But the lie is, God only loves me by how I perform and the condition of my life. But according to how Peterson translates Romans 5.8, but God put his love on the line for me by offering his son in sacrificial death while I was of no use whatsoever to him. <laughs> Can I tell you something today, church? It was never about your performance. It was never about your condition. When you were of no use to God, what would cause the God of the universe to put his own heart on the line? What would cause God to risk being rejected for the sake of restoring friendship with you? That before you knew how to act right, come to church, smile and nod and do all the right things, before you know all those scriptures, and you just had your act together. Because you weren't always like that. God said, yeah, I'll put my heart on the line. I'll come after you. You might never love me back. You might even reject me, but I'll never stop loving you. <laughs> Are you creating space daily to allow God to love you. Not you loving God or you loving others, but letting God love you. You practicing the spiritual gift of receiving. Because Bernie Manning says religion is a matter not only of learning how to think about God, but of actually encountering Him. And what I would say right now as we close is it's one thing to know God's love. It's another thing to experience it. Which if we're going to relax, and in order to relax, receive. In order to receive, we need to respond. That a returning to friendship means a returning to the Spirit. And I prophetically speak in the days ahead of this church is going to be a returning to the Holy Spirit. But it won't be about power and manifestation and man and flesh. It'll be about the presence of God. Manifest, tangible love of God. Love is a person. God is love, which means where God's presence is, there is love. Romans 5.5, 5, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit who has been given to us. Frederick Dale Bruner writes, Paul wants us to appreciate this amazing fact that not only is God's love an experience, it's also a person. No one less than God's Spirit. As God's most personal, internal gift of himself inside our very lives, believers in Jesus are not only given the gift of perfectly right relationship with the great God above us, but we are also given the gift of God's very presence in us. That according to Scripture, it is only through the inner working of the Spirit of Jesus in your life, not your striving, not your doing, not your performing, that the extravagant love of God is poured into your life. I'd sum it down to you this way. It's the Holy Spirit that makes what you know in your head real in your heart. It's the Spirit that makes it real. 
There's people here today, you are brilliant intellectually, and you know so much about Scripture here. But there's another depth and level the Spirit of God wants to take you where what you know here translates to your heart and becomes real to you. That Dan Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. It's one thing as a child to be told your dad loves you and to believe him. You take him at his word, but it is another thing unutterably to be more real, to be swept up in his embrace, to feel the warmth, to hear his beating heart within his chest, to instantly know the protective grip of his arms. It's one thing to hear he loves you, but oh, it's another thing to feel his love. This is the glorious work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that allows me to feel God's heart for me. And my question for you today is, have you met the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Spirit of Jesus? And what kind of space are you making in your life this week? I'm not talking about reading your Bible. I'm not talking about a certain kind of prayer or fasting or serving. All those things have its place. But did you know you can do all those things and miss a person? that thank God for deep change and spiritual disciplines and habits and all the things that, listen, I, I talked to your pastor all night last night about it, but it's all means to an end, church. And the end is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Friendship with Jesus. Relationship with Jesus. God forbid we build church and fall in love with church more than Jesus. Fall in love with politics more than Jesus. Fall in love with our, our stance and our convictions on orthodoxy more than Jesus. Jesus closes in Revelation with a dire warning and an unimaginable promise. He says, church, to Ephesus, if you don't do this, I'll remove your influence. That's a whole nother sermon for another day. But you know what he says in Revelation 2.7, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, if you wanted to geek out with me on the Bible and nerd out for a minute, maybe we do this another time, I could take you and show you the amazing symbolic imagery here of the tree of life in paradise and how it relays back to Eden. But I'll sum it up real short and sweet for you. Jesus is saying, I am the tree of life. I am paradise. And what Jesus is promising to the church of Ephesus is I'll give you more of myself. You want more of me? You'll have it. The same garden where Adam, Adam's lifeless body received the breath of God through his nostrils. And as he opened his eyes, what did Adam see? The face of love gazing back at him. Friendship, intimacy, returning to the garden. And as we stand and we take a moment to close all over the room today, if you don't mind to stand with me, I want to read this verse to you as we take a moment to respond to the Spirit. I know we're going to take communion here in a moment and worship, and I'm going to let the worship team facilitate all of that. But as I, pr I prayed and asked the Holy Spirit, how do we close today? Catch this in Revelation 3.20. Jesus gives an invitation and he says, here I am. 
I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now, oftentimes you hear this verse used in crusades or for salvation call, and Jesus is standing at the door of the heart of a, of a non-believer, and you know, we're going to lead people into salvation this moment. But church, pay attention to me here. It's really important. Jesus, the context behind this verse is not non-believers, it's church people. And I'm telling you today, the same Jesus of Nazareth that's standing at the door of the heart of these seven churches in Revelation is standing at the door of men and women's hearts today in this room. And he's saying, hey, here I am. He's knocking. And he's asking, will you let me in? So I can come sit down and Restore friendship with us once again. Jesus is saying today, I'm standing out the door. I'd love to come in. Let's get back to what we had at first. You and me, forever. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I just want to ask you a question, and it's what I ask our community back home. It's what is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this moment? We're going to get ready to pray and to respond. And what a beautiful moment in this time to ask the Spirit of Jesus, not only what He is saying to us, but to create space to allow Him to speak and to move deep within our hearts. I just want to encourage you, if you feel comfortable, to open up your hands, maybe as a posture of surrender, wherever you're at. And I want you to just imagine in your hand whatever you're trusting in today. It's a relationship, an outcome, a job, a person. And I want you to just imagine you giving it to God. And as you give it to God, I want you to imagine God putting something back in your hands. God allowing you to receive in return what he has. So we say right now, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name.